0: And welcome to Fade Out, the podcast that examines the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, I'm your host, Rob Kelly. For this episode, our subject is actor Peter Cushing. Born in Surrey, England in 1913, Cushing had his eyes set on acting from an early age. However, his father was dead set against it, forcing the young man to appear in local stage productions in secret, often having to practice his lines in the attic of his family home. Eventually, though, Cushing's persistence paid off, and he began appearing in bigger and bigger stage productions, attracting positive notices. In 1939, with less than $50 to his name, Cushing left England to go to Hollywood. Thanks in part to what we would today call networking, Cushing landed a role in James Whale's adaptation of The Man in the Iron Mask, making it his official screen debut, sort of. He continued working in small parts, but despite that success, he grew homesick and in 1941 returned to England just in time for World War II. While Cushing was not selected for active duty, he did join various organizations that put on entertainment for the troops. Post-war, Cushing found himself struggling once again to find work, until Lawrence Olivier cast him as Osric in his 1948 production of Hamlet, which would go on to win the Academy Award for Best Picture. This helped Cushing land more jobs in film, theater, radio, and eventually television. Cushing continued to eke out a living until 1957 when he saw a newspaper ad for a low-budget production company named Hammer, which was putting together a remake of Frankenstein. Hammer immediately hired Cushing, despite being almost 20 years older than the character he was playing. The Curse of Frankenstein was a trend-setting smash, the first of 22 films Cushing would make for Hammer, many co-starring with his close friend, Christopher Lee. Cushing would go on to star in numerous horror and sci-fi classics, and many not-so-classics, like Horror of Dracula, The Mummy, The Hound of the Baskervilles, The Flesh and the Fiends, The Skull, The Vampire Lovers, Twins of Evil, and Tales from the Crypt. He became the first cinematic Doctor Who in 1965's Doctor Who and the Daleks, returning to the role in the 1966 sequel, Daleks Invasion Earth, 2150 A.D. Now a beloved figure to the next generation of filmmakers, George Lucas cast him as Grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars, introducing him to an entire new audience. He continued to work in films and television, collaborating with Lee and other horror legends, Vincent Price and John Carradine, for 1982's horror comedy, The House of Long Shadows. He made a brief appearance in the 1984 spy spoof Top Secret, and then in the 1986 sci-fi adventure, Biggles Adventures in Time. Now in his 70s and a widower, Cushing retired to his home to write two autobiographies and become a beloved local figure. He passed away in 1984 at age 81, leaving behind an impressive legacy of work. Here with me to discuss Biggles, Adventures in Time, and the career of Peter Cushing is actor and composer Lucien Dezar. Hi, Lucian. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on here to discuss the amazing Peter Cushing. Thank you so much for doing this. We've been friends for a long time. We've only podcasted once before, and we had a, I had a blast talking with you. We talked about a a Conan comic book. Uh, (laughs) for my mountain comic show and except we've been friends for a long time and you are, I said, you you know, you, you, you and I talk movies all the time. And so I don't know why it took me so long to think, to, to say to you, you got to come on fade out. And so you pitched me Peter Cushing, which was like right over the plate for me, because I'm assuming like you, you know, I just, I love Peter Cushing. I grew up on Peter Cushing. And so this is exactly the kind of thing I would love to talk about because it give me a chance to watch all of his great exactly. movies. Again, it's some of his not-so-great movies, but those are fun too. So thank you so much for being here. So let's start off. Let me start off with the first question is, can you remember when you first saw Peter Cushing? Like, What was the first film you saw that made an impression on?
1: Yeah, I remember it distinctly. Um, I, it was in the 1980s, and I was at a Halloween party. It was on Halloween. And so there was a TV in the background and it was actually a hammer horror. It was a Dracula. And there's this guy on there, Peter Cushing. I didn't know what his name was, but he just, he was so distinct looking, you know, he was different than anyone that you usually saw. And, but what always impresses me about him is that he's 100%, like literally a hundred percent or more devoted to the character he was playing. No matter how ludicrous, no matter how bad the script was, he was Dead set, right on the mark. There was no break, just complete utter focus and confidence in his acting ability that made anyone watching him take notice. So, yeah, that that was when I first saw him. And, you know, I was hooked ever since.
0: I mean, that is a fantastic way to start, right? The horror of Dracula, because <laughs> that film is so good and it's so fun. I mean, I have to say my first one from my memory was Star Wars. I was six years old when Star Wars came out. I saw it in its original release because I'm that old. And yep. so I am sure that I had no familiarity with him uh, to that point. I remembered he is, it's kind of funny. You think about it, like of all the main characters from star Wars, he's the only one that stays dead from the, <laughs> from the every he, only one that dies doesn't very make it early on. Wars. Right. Yeah. You no. Know? I mean, even Ben Kenobi continues to live on and Darth Vader survives, but grandma dies at the end. But he, first of all, part of it was his look is that he had that skeletal look as he got older. He kind of got thinner and thinner. until so he had that, You know, those deep-set eyes and those incredible, like, model-like cheekbones. And, you know, the movie, of course, Star Wars sets up that Darth Vader is the baddest of the bad by the music. You know, John Williams' brilliant score and the way he's killing people left and right. And yet, here is this kind of little old man bossing him around. And even though, you know, Darth Vader could probably, if he wants to, use the force to snap Grand Moff Tarkin's neck, the fact that he doesn't. Tells you a lot. And so with not a whole lot of screen time, and of course, you know, he does blow up a whole planet. That's something too. <laughs> but it's like he, Lucas immediately says like, man, this guy is impressive. Even though he dies, uh, he should have evacuated off the Death Star when he had the chance, but he doesn't. But nevertheless, this guy was a real badass. And I will tell you not to get us sidetracked right from the very beginning. I was always very frustrated that there was no Grand Moff Tarkin action figure. in the star wars line a long time yeah (laughs) yeah it wasn't until like the 90s they finally made one but as a kid i was always like this guy ran the death star why didn't he get and it's because i did the research on this it's because he dies his character dies and kenner was like what what do kids want to do with a guy that dies so that's why he didn't get an action figure but i would have killed for that because he he was so cool
1: Right. And the irony is that he was actually into toys. He collected. Toys, yes. <laughs> toy soldiers It right. would have been right on his wheelhouse to have an action figure of him, you know? Oh,
0: man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I see him in Star Wars and, and you know, for as much as a six year old can kind of understand, you know, actors, you know, like who that is or whatever. But I mean, right around that point is when I would have been going home and watching movies on syndicated television and that was like there was a station in Philadelphia called Channel 48, and they played horror movies and Abigastello and Blondie comedies on Sundays, and yeah. they started running the classic Universals and the Hammer films. And that
1: same one here, same in New York.
0: Oh, is New it York. really the same? Is it the not same, same the channel same, or different? Not cha- the same, cha-
1: okay, different channel, but the same lineup.
0: What was your channel? I you was remember?
1: like, uh, it was like NBC Channel Three, and it was either. I think it was on a Saturday afternoon. Okay, all the black and white films,
0: uh, horror films. Yep, Yep. and so that stuff, you know, that is was the perfect fodder for young me to get into movies and monsters was to be able to see all this stuff. And you're talking about *Horror of Dracula*. The thing I remember distinctly again, I can't say I remember when I saw *Horror of Dracula* for the first time. I know I watched it on television, but the thing I remember really distinctly because I had seen. The Bela Lugosi Dracula before that, you know, and yeah, everybody's yep. right. And the Van Helsing in that Edward Sloan is, you know, that movie is not an action movie. <laughs> and it was slow. It's, I thought, it's I, slow. I thought a was movie. bored
1: as a kid. I thought it was boring, not as exciting as Frankenstein. Right. right. And so it's, it's
0: very boring. talky. And, and, and Dr. Van Helsing is kind of this. He's got these kind of Coke bottle glasses and he's more like a nerd. I mean, yeah, he, he ends up stopping Dracula, but he's not a man of action the peter cushing van helsing is a man of action and that final scene where he jumps up on the table with the with the cross and pulls this shit pulls the um the the drapes down and gets the sunlight onto christopher lee you're like oh man this is like a badass van helsing you know like <laughs> this and i learned that that was apparently was cushing's idea was that yep that moment. And so you're like that to me immediately said, even though he's already like in his late forties, by that point that he had done that film, it just set up. was like, Oh man, this, this guy, I love this van Helsing. This is a cool van Helsing. And so to me, I think that probably immediately put in my mind of like, I just love this guy. When I see him in a movie, I'm paying attention. Cause I just, this guy is super cool. <laughs> he had so
1: much acting experience by the time hammer um, hired him. Uh, it, it was incredible. He did so many different uh, theater. He did movies. He almost got a picture deal, you know, in the, right before World War Two. Mm-hmm. He got homesick, took him 18 months to get back to England because it was the war. He couldn't go into the war because he had an injury to his, I think, leg or something like that. Um, so he was in a um, an acting troupe that toured around Europe for the um, acting for British soldiers, you know, for plays. And like there were times where like the German shells were going off and he had to act during the bombing. (laughs) So if you can imagine, it's like he had this ability of acting during an actual war. I think he can act like, you know, in in London (laughs) for Hammer Horror.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, you can you, you can pay attention and know your lines while you while your literal city is falling down around. I'm guessing you have not ever had to perform under that kind of duress. No, no, <laughs> not, not, not even close. Thank goodness. Thank if, God that if it's right. raining, I, if it's raining, I'm complaining about it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm such a wimp.
0: So okay, uh, before we get to 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 Biggles, uh, because there's a, there's a bit to talk about in that film, and it kind of has yep. an interesting history and stuff. Uh, what do what are some of your favorite Christopher? Excuse me, Christopher Lee. I Peter Cushing. What are your favorite? Some of your favorite Peter Cushing movies, and were there ones that you discovered in kind of the lead up to this episode that you hadn't seen before that either were notable or you really liked i think my favorite are the sherlock holmes i always when i think
1: of like sherlock holmes like if i reread the stories in my mind it's peter cushing as sherlock holmes uh he's just so english you know he has that (laughs) It, what attracts me is a lot is his voice, because his voice is so perfect. It, it Like his enunciation, everything that he speaks is just so right on. And, and I assumed at one time that it was like natural. That was his voice. Like he was born and talked in this perfect English accent. And it was like nothing was further from the truth. He actually, um, you know, he was born in like Southeast England, and he had this Cornish accent. Uh, and that's kind of like if you think of Sweeney Todd with John johnny depp you know uh, governor that really thick (laughs) accent and um he tried to get he tried to be uh go to school for acting and he he went to uh audition and they basically said like he said three words and the guy that was running the school was like get out i don't want (laughs) to and he's like what but out and he was like sobbing he goes out of the room and the secretary felt so sorry for him and, and she's like that's a dear. That's OK, chap. Just sit here. Uh, you'll be there. I'll try to talk him into it. So he, he waits until he sees all the other kids. And then he, he's like, all right, we're going to try one more time. And he comes up and the guy said, don't even speak to me. I don't want to hear it. You sound like you sell fish at a market. It's not going to work. Here's a book on the King's English. Learn this, you know, how to pronunciate everything correctly and come back. And of course, you know, there's accents are, are a big thing in like entertainment industry. And and first off, just make it clear, everyone in the world has an accent. No matter where you're at, there's there's a distinct ac- accent involved. And for the accent that was in theater at the time and also adopted by the BBC was called the King's accent, also known as RP, the Oxford um I think it's the Oxford accent and so forth. And so he had to learn how to do this over and over and over. And he did it within two weeks. He came back and the guy. Two weeks. The, yeah. The, the guy in the school was like, all right, well, it's, it's, it's getting better. All his kids, you know, all his friends were making fun of him because he had this posh accent. And then they had like, you know, this, you know, rough and tumble accent that was localized. And, um, you know, from then on, he, he was hooked on acting and
0: uh, went to school. That was definitely something I'd picked up from. I mean, I have not seen to this point before we were doing this episode. I had not really seen that many, really hardly at all. Any interviews with him? Like I just seen him in movies. Uh, And then I read his autobiography that he published. And it's, uh, I I saw that he published two autobiographies. And then there was a later edition that smooshed them together into one book. And that was the one I read. And like I kind of talked about in the intro, he did a lot of what we call now today networking and that he just, and there's this bit where he goes to Hollywood and somebody says, Oh, well, why don't you call this actor, Robert Morley, and maybe he'll help you. And like, he just does. Like, he just calls this guy. Like you imagine nowadays, it's like somebody being like, Hey, why don't you call Tom Hanks and see if he can get, not the Robert Morley was that equivalent, but nevertheless, Robert Morley was a working actor. And, you know, if I mentioned some of his credits, you'd know who he is by by the credits, not necessarily the name. But like, can you imagine saying, hey, call this famous actor and see if he'll get you work? Like, yeah,
1: how would that Yeah, He had the gall. He his first theater gig, he literally wrote to the theater owner or the theater director every single week, like so many times. And he finally showed up and the guy like accepted to talk to him only to tell him, can you please stop writing? (laughs) <laughs> and he's like, I really want to work here. And the guy was like, All right, I'll give you this. This guy was sick. You'll you'll be like a stand-in. Don't do anything. You're in the background. And so they put Peter Cushing on the stage, you know, as a background. Just just blend in. And he starts acting this one bit. And like the director is out in the wings looking at, like, what the hell are you doing? And he's like, know, playing with gum on his shoe and then like the audience is laughing and he's like yeah they like me (laughs) so he had something with him that he had like the gall of of just doing things
0: you know and and getting people to help him i guess i mean first of all anyone who looked as distinctive as peter cushing is going to blend into the background like that's nonsense (laughs) even when he was young and he wasn't quite as skeletal looking as he became He still is very distinctive looking. He looked very different than most people. Yeah, and so he's not blending into the background. So one of the things that intrigued me about talking about an actor's career with you is because you are an actor, so you can speak to this in a way that I never can. Does that really work anymore where you see it in movies all the time, the whole annoy somebody till they give in? I feel like if you do that, you just piss them off and you'll never get it No, I've heard of – I mean, there's no way – to tell
1: people this is how your career should be. And I've heard the strangest stories like someone was taking care of someone's dog. Oh, and that just happens to be, you know, the 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 daughter of this director. Hey, why don't I introduce you to them? (laughs) Boom. You know? And and it's (laughs) and it's just like it's all built on relationships and stuff like that. And I think the biggest thing is if you if you're a nice person and not a jerk and you show up on time and you know what you're doing, that's like the 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 majority of the job, you know, um, anybody that that doesn't do those, the uh, most, you know, they get bad uh, street cred, I guess, in in a way, and not
0: uh, get, land the jobs as easily. I, I mean, when I've tried to score, and obviously not acting work, but work from other people, I always am afraid of oversaturating them with messages because i'm I, because of that very thing i'm always afraid i'm going to piss somebody up but then i keep reading of all these examples of people who become massively successful by just not giving in and peter right. cushing is another example where he's he's writing to this guy every week give me a gig give me a gig and they're just, no leave me alone and then, all right and then boom you know it starts, yeah. begins so it's like okay i guess in some cases it does work and again you always have to be Right place, right time. That's always the thing as well. It's like this opportunity is there and then, oh, okay, so okay. Um And, you know, he said he – he goes back to to England. I mean, he lands in Hollywood and he make has a little bit of success. Now, almost I mean,
1: gets a almost
0: gets a picture deal, like a multi- yes, right? You, deal. almost yep. gets a deal. Now, I mentioned in the intro when I said "Man in There and Mask" is his first appearance, sort of. Why don't you explain to people what I what I meant by that?
1: Well, well what he was doing was a stand-in. So, in the um, in the movie, there's two characters that look the same. So, what they did was a split screen. So, Peter's role was basically acting out as if he was that character. But he was only going to be mimicked by the actor to match it uh so the actor wasn't like acting against himself, so he was basically a stand in which you make a lot of money as a stand-in you know there's a set rate um certain actors uh have you know stand- um stand-ins that you know uh work with them in every uh, every picture I knew, mm-hmm. I knew this one lady who was um I think her name was Juliet Binoche. Uh, She was a stand-in for this lady. She looked just like her. And like every picture, she was the stand-in. And the stand-in is basically, most of the time you line up the shot, you have the stand-in in in place, you know, how many actors. So the real actors are offset learning their lines. But it can take like 20, 30, 40 minutes, up to an hour to set up the lights, set up the, you know, the effects and everything. And uh, especially if you have, older actors you don't want an older actor standing in place solid for for an exact hour that can actually be very painful so that's why you have to stand in then the stand then they're like okay pictures up stand-in goes out then the regular actor goes in amazing isn't it like that's a thing (laughs) and and you get a chair the stand-in gets a chair as well you know you know those actor chairs with the name on it stand-in is there too so
0: it's always funny when you see those pictures of like you know Brad Pitt and his stand-in, and it's like they look a little alike, like enough yeah. that the lighting will work. But yep. you realize no one would ever, you know, mistake him for Brad Pitt or whatever, <laughs> whoever Julia Penuche. But yet it's like it's just the facial features are just close enough that the lighting works. And the height, yeah, the, the right. height, right? The height, of course. That's a, that really right on the money. Is the is the height? So yeah, so he gets in the movie sort of. Yeah, But that gets him a little bit of some gigs here and there and he's working with James Whale. He becomes I mean...
1: friends with the act the lead actor who's also British. Oh, and, right, and, right, right. Yes. And, yeah. In fact, he even like live not doesn't live
0: with him, but he goes on vacation with him and stuff like that. <laughs> Again, like, you know, this is, right. it's amazing. <laughs> So then he goes back to England because he's homesick, which is yep. amazing when you think about it. Like he, he pitches everything to go to Hollywood. And then after two years, it's like, oh, I really miss England. So it was back during to the England. war. Well, it's during getting the war, during the war. And so, he again, he participates in, as you, you talked about, these entertainment shows. Then he, he's struggling for a bit. He makes scarves. On the side for side yep. money, you know, he actually one quite- is owned. One is owned by the queen. Eventually. That's right. Yes, yep. and quite talented at it. Like you know, yep. um, that was something else I didn't mention in the intro is that his father. Well, I did mention that his father didn't want him to be an actor. He knew his son was artistic, and so he pointed him towards doing art, like drawing, for a living. Which again, it shows you how different things are. That like art could be considered the safe career. Uh, versus acting but what he but he pointed his son to doing was like draftsmanship like turning you know kind of doing building you know building schematics and things like that which is actually a little closer to architecture but nevertheless drawing and so cushing does that and he hates it he just finds it crushingly boring and so he starts doing these plays on the side and as i mentioned again in the intro he's doing his he's running his lines in his attic because he doesn't want his father to hear that he's doing this thing so anyway he goes back to england struggles a bit more then he lands this part in hamlet which is this huge thing because again it's Lawrence olivier and everything and then he makes friends with olivier yeah i was gonna say he makes friends with it friends with olivier i mean good lord um and then he's then at that point is it right around then that he met his wife yes then he meets his uh wife helen all right No. so this is one of the great like love stories that you're ever going to hear about because this guy cushing was i mean devoted to her be most beyond what most people would even really almost feel comfortable expressing in terms of how much he loved this woman i mean when when you again we both read the books when you talk about that a little bit how much this woman was part of his life yeah i mean there's a distinct marker you know they were married for 28 years
1: where he became a brilliant actor but when he met her all of a sudden she's like was able to like essentially mold him to build him to be stronger. And Peter Cushing had, I think he had general anxiety. Uh he had massive panic attacks. He had uh a breakdown, you know, he, he was not always very secure with things. And Helen was was almost like his manager, you know, not really his manager, but like kind of like guiding his his career, telling him, oh, write to all these radio producers write to all these tv producers etc and just kept on prodding him and saying and giving him such praise like he he you know in his bio- autobiography he he posted one of the uh, letters his his wife wrote him and she like raised him to like a high pedestal like he was <laughs> like, the the greatest actor ever and one one great thing that happened so there were times prior to meeting Helen when he had tremendous self-doubt about himself and Peter said in interviews that Helen would know just say just the right things to change his thought patterns hmm. when uh you know he had self-doubt and then one time uh the first time he was on TV was in December 1951 and back then television in England and as well as the US uh had very limited stations and in particular England had one station and that was BBC So everyone that owned a TV, not a lot of people owned TV sets back then, but if they did, they had to pay like a a charge to watch TV. You had a license to watch TV and then everybody would come, you know, neighborhoods and everything and they would watch it, but it was live. There is no tape. There is no delay. You're literally, it's like live theatrical acting, but the camera is really up close. So if you mess up, you mess up. There's no way (laughs) to recover. And Peter was so scared because he was like, "If I mess up, millions of people are going to see me i'm done i 'm history right and he did it for the first night and then the second night, and he he was about to give up and he was he ta- he told his wife and she said well i'll I'll be there i'll support you and he was able to talk his director into having his wife on set, which is actually <laughs> not the most professional thing in the world to do but you know so she was on set you know in the listening booth and he was able to do it and from then on like whenever he was in the uh TV or film theater she was there and she was like guiding him you know she was like his his encouragement
0: it's amazing uh and i mean not to get ahead of ourselves but when she passes away 1971 1971 he basically didn't even have the energy to do anything anymore and it was i think it was christopher lee that kind of coaxed him out and said you know i you know i know that you're you're absolutely demolished emotionally from this but sort of like what what good are you doing sitting at home and work is your savior at work is right exactly like so come on out come on let's do these things and of course the as i mentioned again in the intro those two were great friends and appeared in like, like 20 films together, almost never playing friends, which is interesting. They usually played, uh, you know. Enemies. Enemies yeah. or like in The Mummy, you know, Christopher Lee is the mummy and that and or whatever. And and so that's kind of funny that they're always kind of playing ad- adversaries of each other, which is when we you know they had great friends. And that's the kind of thing where you wish that that stuff in another universe could have been. Those conversations recorded. could have been recorded. Yeah. I mean, what would that have sounded like these two guys just telling <laughs> stories with each other like that had to have been utterly fascinating to watch these guys sit and just shoot the shit back and forth.
1: <laughs> it's so cool. It was probably Peter Cushing with his Britain soldiers up in the attic. And then, uh, you know, Christopher Lee with a glass of whiskey or something like that. Oh
0: man. Imagine. <laughs> oh, it would have been so cool. So, so then, you know, he said he's he's struggling a bit more. He lands bit parts here and there. He was in, I. this is something I did not know again until I was doing research. He's in the John Huston Moulin Rouge yep. with Christopher Lee. I did yeah. not know that. I, when I was going through his IMDb, I'm like, he's in Moulin Rouge and I'd never seen that film. So I went and checked it out. And there, you know, he's only got like one scene or one and a half scenes, but there he is, you know, and it's <laughs> it's so fun to see for someone that I grew so I think for so long exclusively almost as a sci-fi horror guy. I mean, he did lots of other things, but I, you know, 90% of what I saw of him was, was those genre movies to see him in a musical, like a big Hollywood musical. It, it's so, it, to me, I just think like it's so fun. they like, wow, there's Peter Cushing in Moulin <laughs> Rouge. Like what a fun little detail. Like That's absolutely fantastic. Um, but so again, you know, he, he lands the, the part, of Baron von Frankenstein and Curse of Frankenstein, and boom, they're off to the races. You know, it it start, it, it launches hammer very fast in his life, apparently. Yeah, it just takes. It like three pages in his biography. Yeah, well, that that's so funny is that the book I enjoyed the book because you you know it, it's it's his book. He really wrote it. Not a he really writer. wrote it. Right, you do not- you do you, for better for, for good and for bad. You don't get any sense that there was a ghostwriter uh, working on it, and so it is kind of. like just spending time with this sort of kindly grandfather and he's not terribly impressed with himself like he's very you know um, self-effacing about this stuff you know he's just kind of like he tells this great story about you know he does Dracula or Horror of Dracula and it's this massive hit you know it's this huge success and then they're working on the sequel and he can't do it because he's off doing something else and so they say well can we use Clip at the end of the previous film. Can we use you as the prologue in the next film? And he's, you know, sure. Yeah, go ahead. You know, you guys have been great to me. Go ahead. As long as he gets paid, probably. Well, right. You know, I mean, it's some nominal thing. And then he says at the same time, he's getting a new roof put on his house, which turned out to be very expensive, but he's getting the roof done. And then he gets a bill from, he gets a letter from the roofing company saying, thank you for your payment. And he's kind of like, what I didn't make the I didn't even pay them yet. What are they talking about? And he finds out that Hammer paid for his roof as a way to say thank you for using the clip. <laughs> That's the great. Thing. And it's like I I mean maybe that stuff goes on nowadays in in Hollywood. No. I don't get the sense that it does now. <laughs> you know,
1: no, because an agent's not making money off it though. There
0: you go. Right. And in he tells another shit. he tells some other story about where he um he meets he goes what is it he meets Sammy Davis Jr. Oh no, he does a Sammy Davis Jr. movie. Yep. He does a cameo in a Sammy Davis Jr. movie, a Jerry Lewis Sammy Davis Jr. movie. And then he gets sent tickets by Sammy for him and his wife to go to like a Sammy Davis Jr. concert and they go and they get like a they got the hotel room paid. Like this That's whole sure. big lavish thing. And you just it I you just love like, first of all, thinking about what just can you imagine what it that would look like? Peter Cushing standing <laughs> next to Sammy Davis Jr. Like what does that even seem like? But just there's just some it's so warm just to hear him tell these stories about, oh, yeah, I did this favor for Sammy Davis Jr. And he wrote me back and he was lovely to my wife. And you're like, right. <laughs> I love this guy. We love this guy. And the reason I'm even bringing all this up is I think there was something about Peter Cushing. And you you hinted about this earlier on. That I think certain actors have. Yeah. And I am I really want to find out if you agree with me and if you do, if you can think of an example. Um, There are certain actors that even if they are not in great movies, right, their batting average is not always great. And Cushing's was not because he did a lot of horror movies, especially in the, the 70s, where he's in like Asylum and Fear in the Night and Horror Express and Nothing But the Night, The Creeping Flesh. And now The Screaming Starts from Beyond the Grave, The Beast Must Die, Madhouse, The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, The Ghoul at the Earth's core there's a lot of not great stuff. <laughs> like they they're fun, but there's there's some really not great movies. But there's something about him that you just like and even when he's in a movie that isn't great, you kind of don't hold it against him. And I said this about uh, in a previous fade out, I said this about Leonard Nimoy. There was something about Leonard Nimoy that you just liked him. And it was even the
1: acting, you know, his acting chops were great. But
0: is it just that? Is it is it or is it is there something else where you just don't hold it against an actor? You're like, ah, it's all right. Other people Mm. can be in bad movies, and you're like, ah, that guy's in a bunch of crap. But there was something about Cushing that it's even though I'm like, ah, this movie isn't great, I'm still enjoying him just because I just like this guy. Yeah, no, I I
1: honestly think that if you had a uh, if you made Star Wars with some paper Boucher. You know, and and paper clips, and at Peter Cushing acting as his role, it would still be entertaining because mm-hmm. he just was such a good actor, and and I think a movie to be carried is number one is the acting and, and the script. If you have both, the audience doesn't care that you know the background in Hammer horror looks like it's going to fall down, like it's made out of paper. You know, <laughs> paper. Um, you know they, they'll, they'll accept it uh, because it's entertaining. But you know, on the other side of it, there's also this personality, and and I'm sure Leonard Nimoy was the same as Peter Cushing. They were just really friendly. They were great to talk to. Um, people liked having them around at parties or mm-hmm. hanging out in vacations and stuff like that. I don't think Peter would have been successful if if he didn't have that that quality about him.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I've never had a hesitation to put on a Peter Cushing movie. Even though I know I watched like, say again, for prep for this episode, like four in a row, where I'm like, boy, none of them were really that good. But I I still watched. I still moved on to the next one, because is it because you think he's committing to it no matter how ridiculous? And he's in he's asked to perform a lot of ridiculous stuff.
1: Yeah, I watched some of his really, really early stuff like that stuff before World War One, World War Two, rather. And it wasn't his acting wasn't that great it was good it was mm-hmm. but it wasn't like hammer horror level where it was like wow this guy's and i think by then he had so many plays done he did so much live tv that he was he was a veteran actor he, he could he could act with his hands tied eyes
0: closed <laughs> I mean, yeah maybe that's what it is it's that mm-hmm. i guess if you're in some of the fault all that he's asked to be in, you know, like the skull, you know, like these or nothing but the night where they're just like these kind of incredible or the, the beast must die where they're just these absolutely absurd premises. I guess you have to, what would be the homework of a good actor is that your commitment to it, because if you're putting, if you feel, if the, if the audience feels that you're kind of putting quotes around it, that you're, you're kind of making fun of it a little, well, then yep. it's like, well, what are we doing here? Like nobody, but, but he's him like Christopher Lee. He's so committed to the absurd situations that they're handing him that you're just like, okay, he's, he's all in. So, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm all in too, even though maybe the final product again, isn't super great. He's giving his all no matter what. And that's, that's just fun to watch.
1: Yeah. And also keep in mind his age. I think it an age of an actor Le- brings credence to the roles mm-hmm. that they're presenting because they've had more life experience. So if you have somebody like 22 playing, you know, um, von, you know, like, like a professor or something like that or a mad scientist, they won't have as much life experience as compared to like somebody in their 40s because mm-hmm. they've experienced, you know, breakups and deaths and all sorts of things that happens in life that um that you can pull up as emotions or you know or as memory while you're playing the role to make it a little bit more believable. So right. for instance, if you have a scene where someone dies, right? You can automatically think back at the time that oh, well this person died or something really tragic happened. Bring that up in your brain and, and you you place that into the scene. You don't tell anyone what you're thinking in real life, but you know, you you're thinking of that while you're like Crying for
0: this fake person you know gotcha yeah <laughs> do you have a this is a two-part question do you did you have a favorite cushing movie that you discovered in the research for this episode that you had not yes. seen before well okay yes. what was that all right so and this one was fascinating and it, he
1: um did you know i was telling you how he did live tv and he did one for the movie 1984 and they filmed it live. And they, they they actually were able to record it by using, I think, KinoScope. There was some kind of system that they could record it. And the second um, airing of it, the second time he performed it live, they recorded it. And it was fascinating. It was actually, his, he was very good in it. The, uh, the TV show actually caused a lot of... Uh, lot of anger in the british population one woman died while watching it supposedly Uh, a lot of people complained to the bbc people uh, wrote to members of parliament how this horrible filth of that peter cushing uh in that 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 movie can be presented because there was something to do with rats attacking him and stuff like that and people just could not handle rats on tv i guess back then and so so i think that's where he got his like a little bit of his villainous streak, you know. He, he kind of had that mark like, oh,
0: he's a little mischievous, you know. <laughs> I yeah, I've I've never that sounds fascinating. I've never I've never seen that. Uh the one I discovered was a unlikely uh combination of bank heist movie and Christmas movie. <laughs> uh from the yeah, that genre from 1960 called Cash on Demand. And oh, it's a ham yeah. it's a hammer film, it's a black yep. and white film. It features Peter Cushing as this very, very stiff upper lip uh, British uh I said that bank manager who, yep. even though it's a holiday, he's kind of uh, very officious and he's kind of almost cruel. Uh, it's very Ebenezer Scrooge kind of thing. <laughs> and it's funny. It's got Andre moral in it who played Watson to Peter Cushing's Sherlock in the yep. hammer hound of the Baskervilles here. Andre moral is a bank robber and he's robbing the bank and he kind of uh, forces, of course, Peter Cushing uh, to go along with it because he's 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 threatening uh, your my your family. And it's like I said, first of all, it's a Christmas movie, which is unusual, and it's fun to see Cushing in a you know, non genre Type thing in the middle, right? And he, you know, he does it kind of in the middle of the hammer run. So it's like he, would, you know, he was doing lots of these horror films and then they put him in this thing. It's a tight film, it's like 86 minutes and it's really delightful. And it even has a kind of sweet ending. And it, you know, it has that kind of, again, like Scrooge kind of thing where he learns the. The, the error of his ways about being such a miser for Christmas and things like that. But it's just a really good, tight little thriller. And I had never seen it. I'd heard of it, but I had never seen it. And Cushing is great in it. And it's just a really solid movie and it's on YouTube for free. You can watch it. So it's, I would highly recommend that. Um Even for just people who just like bank heist movies. But if, especially again, if you're listening to this, you like Peter Cushing, check out cash in the Man I thought it was terrific. So
1: 1984 is on there too on youtube that's oh is it okay oh perfect
0: um so though so so the second part of my question is do you have a favorite bad peter cushing movie we're not that he's bad in it because he's never bad but just a movie that yeah you you is not good but nevertheless i enjoy you
1: you know you know it's kind of timely that you say that because i actually biggles i have to say Uh,
0: it's really (laughs) Yes. Well, okay. Well, then we'll save that until <laughs> okay. we get to Biggles. I'm, I'm interested as to that. That's your response. Mine is 1976's at the Earth's Core, which is an AIP Amicus co-production. It's in oh, color. Yes. Yep. It's based on, uh, you know, it starts starts my one of my early crushes, Caroline Monroe. Uh, it's based on a story by Edgar Rice Burroughs. It's and this will this will kind of re- come back when we go to Biggles. It's. <laughs> It's the kind of movie where the ambition is so big, but they just don't have the budget to pull it off. And not that bigger budget equals better film, often just the reverse is true, but it's the kind of thing where you're like, look, guys, you just don't have the money for this. You, You just you've bitten off. Way more than you can chew. And so in this, Peter Cushing is this kind of... It serves Doug McClure. I already mentioned Caroline Monroe. Uh, and Peter Cushing is this kind of doddering uh, scientist, Dr. Abner Perry and him and uh, Doug McClure. They burrow underground and they find this whole subterranean culture, which makes not a lick of sense. <laughs> and it's it, it's objectively not a good movie, but I love it anyway because it's just so fun and silly. And Cushing is great in it. And he is just kind of like, oh, look at this. You know, he's like, he's not he's not shocked at any of the like he's discovered a whole race of people with a society and like a power structure. And they're all like running around volcano, you know, underground volcanoes. And he's like, Oh, this is quite fascinating. And it's like he just plays it as this sort of doddering old man. And I just find it so charming, even though I can't I put it on I saw it many years ago and I loved it. And then I put it on not that long ago, just to kind of refresh my memory, and my wife is over, you know, over my shoulder, and she's like, "What is this movie?" <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> I can't, I can't justify that this is good, but I, I love it anyway. Speaking of doddering, there's one other thing I wanted to mention before we kind of head into the later part of his career and uh, and Biggles and stuff like that. Is of course he is to this. He was the first, and as far as I understand, only cinematic. Doctor Who, Yes. There, there's never been another. I mean, I know, you know, I'm not in doctor. I, I know nothing about Doctor Who. I've only seen a handful. Well, there of was episodes. a Doctor.
1: There was a Doctor Who movie, right in the 90s. Was that? Yeah. See, I don't know. Yes. Was there? Yes. Was, Shag, was it a? TV Shag movie? right now is is shaking his. But I thought it was a. T- was it a? The,
0: I thought it was a TV movie. I oh, do not know it could, if it was a theatrical <laughs> movie. Maybe I mean, so. I don't know. I, oh, you're right. I think it was a TV movie. Right. See, that's yeah. what I thought. Right. So, I think right. so, and he, and he was. Well, he was certainly the first one. And so, like I mentioned, I. I've only seen a handful of Dr. Who's. And so it's just not something that's in my geek wheelhouse. So just a brief little aside. I asked a couple of friends of mine who are Dr. In fact, Chag was one of them. Yeah. And he deferred to the other two's opinion on this. Cause I asked uh, my friends, uh, Ciscoid who of course is part of the fire and water podcast network and has been on the show. We're talking about before mentioned Leonard Nimoy and my pal, Corey drew who has been on other podcasts of mine. And they are both mega Dr. Who fans. So I fans. So I asked them for their opinion of Peter Cushing as Doctor Who because I figured they have an informed opinion that I cannot. So these are their brief comments. This is what Siskoid says. Um, as far as Cushing, as I remember him in those, it's not uh, Doctor Who as in D-O-C-T-O-R. It's Doctor Who, D-R, period. So he <laughs> plays it, he plays it human. He's like a kindly grandfather to Barbara and Susan Who and an absent-minded professor type. But when the Daleks turn up, he's quite adamant that they should be fought. He has an iron streak that perhaps belies time in the military. Uh, note that these movies are Disney goofy versions of the show's first two serials. We were denied a third based on the chase, which is a terrible serial, though it does have a chapter that features the universal monsters. So think about that with Cushing, but it was never made. So he plays it as family entertainment. The best thing about Cushing is, is in these films for me is his relationship with Susan, who is a little girl in these versions. He looks just like he looks, he just looks like he's very good with children. And then Corey Drew says, uh, I love them, both the movies, a bit uh, as Doctor Who ephemera. They have a, I've fallen into an alternate universe vibe about them. I think stylistically, they're quite lovely to watch. They uh, they watch like someone made a movie based on being told what Doctor Who was and then had to walk across town and make a movie based (laughs) on only what they could remember. I don't think from a continuity standpoint there is anything at all in these shows um, after their production that ties back to them. But one day there probably will be. I think I would probably say if you don't love Peter Cushing or you don't love Doctor Who, there isn't a ton of reason to watch them. But I think they were reasonably successful and kept Dalek Mania going a bit longer. So thank you, boys. I appreciate the Doctor Who wisdom. Have you seen either one of the Doctor Who movies? A long time ago. I don't remember it, which probably is a bad sign, right? <laughs> I saw the first one and yep. I liked it. Again, I I don't I I don't come into I didn't come into them with any sort of particular love for the show. So I was like, okay, I know they've had a dozen actors playing Dr. Who, so what's wrong with this one? But again, yep. according to big Doctor Who fans, it's just it's kind of this, you know, it's like the Star Wars holiday special. It's like this thing that just kind of it's exists like off- over there. It's
1: an offshoot basically, yeah.
0: like a multiverse yeah. Exactly, but nevertheless, I mean, the guy played Doctor Who for the first time in a movie. I mean, that's right there. What a career! You know, he's played yeah. <laughs> he's, he's played von Helsing, he's played Baron von Frankenstein, he's Graham Moff Tarkin, he's Doctor Who. I mean, that's you know, really quite quite a career. Uh, one role that he is famous for turning down, of course, is Doctor Loomis in Halloween. John Carpenter, of course, giant yep. horror fan, uh, first offered it to I think he offered it to Christopher Lee first. And then he offered it, who turned it down. And I guess I think Lee wanted more money. Cushing turned it down, and then they gave it to Donald Pleasance. And, of course, Donald Pleasants rode that particular gravy train until, until <laughs> it was over. I, I cannot picture Christopher Lee as Dr. Loomis. He's just much too intimidating. He's too tall. I think that if you saw him square off against Michael Myers, you would be like, Michael Myers is going to get his ass kicked. I mean, this is ridiculous. Yeah. But Cushing... I could see Cushing playing it. I that I that I could totally imagine.
1: Yeah, I think he could he could do the role. I bet you he turned it down cuz it was shot in America, right? And he he just wants to, wanted to stay in England.
0: Oh, maybe. Yeah, I don't think I ever really read why he turned it down, but yeah, maybe so. Um it's a shame because that's you know, it's an alternate history to think about what that would have looked like. Uh real you know, kind of And imagine if he had done it right after Star Wars. I mean, good lord, what a like, kind of <laughs> genre one-two punch. Um that would have been and and so you know again again, he continues to work. I mentioned he appears in top secret of all things, yep. <laughs> a very strange little gag um that 's when he had
1: he started getting cancer actually was right before top secret oh, was that when it was yeah, and I, does he have some like something hiding his eye or something like that in he there's
0: secret? a gag where we walk in, Val Kilmer walks in and he 's in a bookstore and he 's got a magnifying glass and he's reading a book and his eye is of course distorted because you think that's what you're seeing and then he puts the eyeglass down and you see that his eye is just weird looking so it's just a little that actually was
1: that was actually because he had cancer at the time he had a an emergency issue with his eye really yep it said it in his uh, autobiography oh i missed
0: that how did i forget that part okay did they just did so did they craft the gag around His appearance?
1: Yeah, I think that was the part of the issue that that they were talking about.
0: Yep, that's wow. Oh my god, that's that's it's so funny to see him there though. Like you're just like, well, why is Peter Cushing in Top Secret? You know, like, what (laughs) it was strange. Like this is such an odd thing. So again, he continues to work, and then so he then uh, says yes to what will end up being his final film, Biggles. An adventure in time. It's called an adventure in time in in America when it was released in America because Biggles. uh, It was in England. It was just called Biggles, and they they figured in America nobody knew what Biggles was. I I raised my hand. I had no idea what it was. Just to give a brief backstory, Biggles is was a series of uh, war adventure novels, kind of for young adults, by a writer named W. E. Johns, and he wrote them from 1932. All the way to 1968. So they were massively popular. And they're just stories of this character. He was a pilot and his friends. And the one... I've never read any of the Biggles books. I assume you have not as well? I didn't even know about Biggles until this movie. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, and the, the the one distinctive thing... They, I mean, not the one distinctive, but, but a a distinctive thing about them is... The writer, W.E. Johns, apparently did not pay a whole lot of attention to the time stream, which is <laughs> ironic, given what this movie's about. But it's like, you know, the the, the, the first sets of novels are in World War One, and then he wrote later ones where it's in World War Two, and the characters are still, like, in their 20s. And you're like, well, wait a minute. If they were 20 in 1917... How can they be 22 in 1941? And he just kind of ignored that. Yeah, it is like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They just kind of skipped all that. But they were massively popular books among, you know, British kids. And right after the success in the 1960s of the, uh, like, aviator movie, The Blue Max, they, Hollywood producers, not Hollywood, excuse me, British producers thought, now's the time to do a Biggles movie. We can make a Biggles movie. And then it fell into, so they, okay, they, they hire. James Fox, the actor, to play Biggles. And apparently they even got so far as to uh, put up promotional material saying James Fox is going to be Biggles. And then it falls apart and the movie falls into, the property falls into what they call development hell where it's just constantly getting slushed around and over the course... money. Yeah, right. They they need money. And so over the course of the 70s, various actors get attached to it. Dudley Moore was going to play Biggles at one point. Oliver Reed was going to play the villain at one point. Jeremy Irons was going to play Biggles. So you can see that they're just moving from, pr- and it all just keeps falling apart. Uh, and then finally, 1985 rolls around and they finally get this thing produced and it's directed by John. I don't know how you pronounce Hugh? it. Ho- is oh, it Hugh? How? No, it's how? how? how yeah. yeah, I think. Uh, this is, this guy directed really some you know terrific movies Legend of Hell House, which I love. I love that movie. Brass yep. Target. Uh, which yep. is a solid action movie, Escape the Witch Mountain. And so he... Oh, wait, one more thing. He did three
1: movies for an... an- 1984 anthology for Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense.
0: Oh, did it? Oh, that's right. Okay, yes, yes, yes. yes. So, yeah, yep. so he's, you know, he's a real, you know, a genuine director. And so they hire him to 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 bring on the... to, to pull this off. They hired two uh, writers, John Groves and Kent Walwin, And... They had some various, John Groves has a bunch of uh, American TV credits, chips, emergency. He wrote the back to the future ride for you know, <laughs> for a theme park. I don't know how you get that gig. Exactly. But it's something <laughs> that he wrote. Uh Kent Walwyn only has a couple of credits as a writer. And then he more has a producer, but they decide to add an element to the Biggles plot. Uh, that seems like a big deal in that they had time travel which does not exist in any of the biggle's the biggle's books the biggle's books do not have any sci-fi elements but they added it to help make it sell and i mean of course as an american like you we're not we don't we're not coming into it with any sort of preconceived notion right right but i would imagine if you were a biggle's fan in england you'd be like huh <laughs> like you can't do that! Like, what are you talking about? So, I so uh, that that was what it was. So, okay, uh, we'll get into the plot in a minute. But what was your, what was your, what was your first impression of when you're watching Biggles: An uh, Adventure honest, in Time?
1: The first impression was this is the worst music I've ever heard in my life.
0: It is a very 80s soundtrack.
1: It is so bad. It is so out of place. I mean, what I really liked
0: were these.
1: They had a lot of uh, air stunts, you know, with biplanes mm-hmm. uh, from World War One, flying all around, shooting one another, and they're going like through a forest, below tree level, swinging around, and and you realize there was this was before drone shots, CGI. This is like real. Yeah, they they really do this. Helicopter yeah. tracking them, so it was actually extremely dangerous. But you know, they have to fly low because if you film a uh, plane up in the sky, it's pretty darn boring because there's no you don't know what's how fast it's going so that's why it's really low right you have no
0: way to judge unless you see something in the background
1: right and they're they're having they're having like baron von rickster shooting at this other plane and they're playing this like weird yes song like now i'm getting (laughs) shot it was just (laughs) i'm like what why would you do this
0: yeah. Uh, okay. Let me, let, me, let, let <laughs> yes. So let okay. me, let me, I'll relay the plot, everybody. Okay. Such as so it I'm getting is. ahead just, here. <laughs> well, I, I should have just so we all know what we're talking about. So uh hapless businessman, Jim Ferguson shockingly finds himself transported back in time to 1917 in the middle of a world war one battle. He saves the life of the already legendary Royal flying Corps pilot, James Biggles Bigglesworth after he is shot down during a recon mission. Ferguson then transports back to modern times, where he is met by a mysterious figure draped all in black, Biggles' former commander, the now elderly William William Raymond. Raymond explains that Ferguson and Biggles are time twins who will be beamed across time when one of them is in mortal danger. Ferguson and Biggles have numerous encounters in each of their eras, eventually teaming up to stop the Germans who have developed a powerful sonic weapon which could win World War I and alter history. Uh, Neil Dixon plays Biggles. He was in the Winds of War TV miniseries. He has a small part in Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, of all things. Uh, and uh, he was in a Marvel film. He was in uh,
1: Mrs. Oh Miss Marvel in 2022. He was a voice of a radio announcer.
0: What a, wow, man, what a random credit. Uh, <laughs> TV movies, uh, using TV shows like Alias and Diagnosis Murder... Alex Hyde-White plays Jim Ferguson. He's been in movies like Pretty Woman and Catch Me If You Can. But he's probably most famous by us geeks as playing Reed Richards in the uh, doomed, pun intended, Roger Corman Fantastic Four film that was made to never be released. And he is. Yeah, yeah, that's him. That's Mr. Fantastic.
1: I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's rough
0: stuff. Uh, Peter Cushing, of course, is William Raymond. Fiona Hutchinson plays Debbie, the love interest. She mostly had a career in uh, soap operas like One Life to Live, Guiding Light. Uh, Marcus Gilbert plays the villain, Eric Von Stahlheim. He was in oh. movies like Army of Darkness and Rambo 3. One of Ferguson's co-workers is the legendary William Hootkins, who has one of the great careers in all of Hollywood. You know him as Eckhart in Batman. You know him as one of the government agents in Raiders of the Lost Ark. He's Porkins in Star Wars. He was in Superman 4 Quest for Peace. I mean, you know, what a career this guy had. <laughs> um, and then uh, Bill, one of the other psychiatrists, characters, is played by an actor named Alan Plonsky, who was credited as insurance man in Aliens. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out who that is. Is that one of the people that takes Ripley to task? For yes. blowing up the yep. the, the Stromo? Is that okay. that's gotta be, right? I guess that's yep, gotta be what they call a day player. Yep. I guess so, right? It's like so so that's the basic cast of this movie. And like we were talking about, uh like I mentioned about Earth, the earth's core. I watched this movie and it look, it's not great. It's not it it just isn't. But it has an interesting quality that it's extremely nineteen eighties. It very much well. It is extremely the the credits it, first of all yeah, with the neon lighting. On,
1: it's free on YouTube, by the it way. It is free on YouTube.
0: See it off to pay for it. Now it's one of the again. It's like I said about it at the core. It's a movie that is trying to be so ambitious. It is trying to tell a adventure sci fi epic story set in two different time periods, and it just doesn't have the budget and the resources to pull it off. And as you mentioned. Lucian, like the stunt work, I think is actually really good. Yes, actually, yeah, the stunt work is actually really yep. quite good. But all the, the 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 effects of Ferguson beaming back and forth are really bad. He literally it, jumps
1: over a couch.
0: Whoosh. Yeah, yeah, right and right, then there's like jumps a jumps over like, a
1: couch. There, a li- li- lightning bolt comes down,
0: and there you go. Uh, it's it's just they're they're just they're trying so hard, and you're like they just don't have the resources. Now, of course that doesn't mean that the acting has to be bad. And I think all the scenes with Jim Ferguson and his, um his like this ad agency that he works for are, they're supposed to be funny. They're not, you know, they're really like ham handed. You know, there's this thing where he's talking about, Oh, they're going to, we're going to use a sexy woman to sell my product. Since when do we start doing that? I'm like, well, since time immemorial, they've been using sex to sell products, but like but, but my main like mat themat- like uh, structurally, with the movie, is Jim Ferguson doesn't exist in these Biggles books. Like so, right. the movie, the movie is about Big. The name of the movie is called Biggles. It's about Biggles, and yet Biggles is sidelined in his own movie, and it just feels like what a strange choice to make at the screenplay. It's like
1: he it was, yeah, he wasn't the main protagonist, right? He was just like a ancillary character.
0: Yeah. It's it's Jim Ferguson that gets next in that poor Alex Hyde white just seems doomed again, p- pun intended to star in these movies where the budget just fails him because, he, you know, ten, 10 years later, he's in Fantastic Four, which is the same kind of idea. I, and, I, and I'm and I, I'm honestly not saying this just because this is our subject, but I think you'll agree. Right. The best part of this is Peter Cushing. It is, and you know, some of the acting, the the uh, actor
1: for Biggles, he he did, does a great job. But the main character, like when he's in the scene with Peter Cushing, it's like Peter Cushing, veteran actor, billion times better acting than this other actor. It's so mismatched. It's almost like disjointed. But like when Cushing shows up, it's like, oh, it's Cushing, you know? It's, yeah, yeah. And he's he's hurting from cancer. He's literally dying. And he's still acting amazing.
0: I mean, first of all, they give him a great set of costumes. Like I mentioned, he's an all in black. So he's kind of this mysterious figure. I mean, they're, they're trying to set it up that he is, you know, maybe a, a nefarious, you know, because he looks scary and he's talking to Ferguson and he's kind of not really letting Ferguson know why he's there. Like, so he's being you know, he shows up at Ferguson's apartment and is, you know, he's not trying to be threatening, but he appears to be threatening because, again, it's Peter Cushing looking like a skeleton in this black hat and black coat. And then he reveals, you know, what, what is go you know, what the, this ridiculous story is. And so every time Cushing's in it, yeah, it grounds the film in some level of, I don't want to say realism, but just, it, it just grounds it somehow of like, okay, this feels somewhat like a real thing. It's like it's I'm like really real believing this story. Yeah. Like a real movie, <laughs> yeah. I guess, you know? Yeah. And then the minute Cushing's out of the film, it kind of just you're like you snap out your step out and you're like oh i'm in this movie yeah yeah and as you mentioned the music is is pretty <laughs> it's pretty pretty rough uh and it, you know and it's it. it just feels like such a strange choice to make where the main character of our movie meets another character and then we kind of follow that character and that is that Goes on. I've seen that in a bunch of movies. I thought actually they kind of just did it in Barbie, where I was a little thrown. Where I'm like, Barbie now is kind of like teamed up with this other character, and now the movie's kind of seen through her eyes. And I'm like, isn't the movie should be about Barbie? Like, so I felt like that. Like, okay, if the movie is about Biggles, it sounds funny just saying that name, Biggles. But just (laughs) you know, if the movie's about that guy, make it about that guy. But I guess the minute they were like, well, no, we got to do the time twin story. Well, then there you go. But it just. I don't know. It just felt like it lost me pretty quickly. And it's a short movie. But even so, about like 20 minutes in, I was like, all right, this is not great. And I don't get the sentence <laughs> it's, getting any better. This is a slog. <laughs> yeah. It feels much longer. But then every time Cushing shows up, you're paying attention. Like, I love his secret headquarters that he has. Like, that looks really cool. the Tower of
1: London, right? The
0: Tower of London. Like, that's all all super cool.
1: And his entrance in the Tower of London, he's looking out the window, a stained glass window. And then there's a crow. He has a pet crow, of course. Mm -hmm. And its shadow is placed right over uh, Peter Cushing's head. And I was like, oh, that is perfect placement. So the cinematographers were good (laughs) to be able to place that in there.
0: Yeah, and he makes it all the way to the end. Like he's a, there's a wedding at the end, and he's there, yep. and uh, it's kind of funny. There's it's not the final final scene that he has, but the next to last scene that he has in the movie. He On tips his he tips his hat, yep. Yep. and I love that. Like that. I mean, again, they did not intend that to that be. That might anything. have been
1: the final scene. You know, they don't film it in in sequence, so that might have been the last day of shooting. I would maybe mind. yeah,
0: maybe so. And yeah. so it's like it's kind of like oh, if you know that that's it. You know, you're like, oh, that's yep. great. He's had a tip in his hand. Yep. And I will tell you, for for many years, you know, uh, I would I, – you know, I loved – as I mentioned, I loved Peter Cushing. And then IMDb rolls around in the 90s, and I'm I'm just deep diving on IMDb because I'm fascinated at having all this information at my fingertips that I never had before. Yep. You know, which is like, oh, my God, I can look up filmographies and cross-reference. I mean, I'm the kind of nerd that's into that stuff. And I remembered – being like, Oh, you know what? What did, what did Christopher Lee do near the end of his life? Cause I remembered he'd passed away in 1994. And I, you know, I see Biggles in adventure in Dime, And I'm like, is that like an eighties cartoon about bears or something? Like what even is that? And so it took me the longest time to find out. And then you helpfully pointed it out to me. You were like, Hey, it's on YouTube. I'm like, all right, great. Perfect. And so, uh, in the biography, in his autobiography, he talks about the movie and he seems relatively complimentary about it. um, but he lived for another eight years. And so he was obviously, as you mentioned, he was ill, but that didn't really stop him. I think he felt and uh, you know, he went on, actually did a he did a, um, a hammer documentary. He narrated a hammer documentary with Christopher Lee, even after Biggles. But this was his last on screen appearance. And he obviously was relatively comfortable knowing that's it. Like he lived long enough to know. Biggles is it. I'm not going to do another film. And then he just retired and lived in this little town and became again, quite the like local celebrity and very beloved and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, we don't know his real opinion on it. It's again, well, the it's,
1: film was big. The film had a major debut. Um it princess, sure did. Prince Charles and princess Diana. Yes. There yeah. he, he gets to meet them. You know, I mean, <laughs> it was a big, huge presentation. I can only imagine what they felt when they got Exa- down I and know. watched it. But, oh, but it, it was it was a big uh, big to do.
0: I wonder what that what that's like when you're you know you're giving a a sort of like royal command performance in the mo- and that's the movie you screen them. Now I will tell you, uh, just one year later, Prince Charles and Prince Diana uh, had a royal screening of Superman Four: Quest for Peace, <laughs> which makes Biggles look like Star Wars. So I mean, like you know, if they didn't like Biggles. Uh, they uh, they really had something. Wait, I mean, I, I after hearing that they saw Biggles and then Superman 4 year to year, you know, two years in a row. I'm like, boy, what? Who was arranging their 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 film viewing it's habits? Probably, it probably
1: contributed to their breakup.
0: Yeah, I mean, Charles, whoa, boy he have such terrible taste in movies. Stop taking me to these movies. Like, what is happening? So, but yeah, so he said, like, keep you know, it's. Would you would you say it's worth watching? Yeah, definitely. You if would. you
1: like if you like 1980s movies, and and it, you know bad 1980s, I like watching bad movies. I don't know why because I have a low expectation and I know I'm right. going to get get upset. Uh, I I think it's worth it because just the music alone is just like wow, this is extremely 80s. The jokes were 80s. You know, every everything was landing that way. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would definitely and, and again it's on YouTube it's free, you know. Yeah. So um it's not a major investment.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh music-wise, uh there was a music video by a band called The Immortals. Yep. And Cushing is in that. And That's it's not
1: technically just, it, his very last. Yes.
0: Time. It's it's yep. he's actually You know, new footage. It's not just clips from the movie. He actually is in the video, and the movie, the video ends with him looking right in the camera, and that's very sweet. Like, I love that he was kind of hip enough to be in like a music video for like in 1986 and do this. Um, yeah, it, it. I would argue for anybody watching it, it's it's really not that great. But if you are a Peter Cushing fan, again, I assume if you're listening to this, you are. It's worth seeing it just to see him one last time, and and looking charming. And looking cool and being, you know, just kinda of, again the, the sort of grounding element of this not particularly great movie. Now it's kind of funny. I mentioned one of the uh, the producers who was one of the screenwriters, he's got an upcoming project, which is something called like Beagles and the Night Witches. Oh and that's in apparently in product in pre-production. Now of course everything's in pre-production until it actually gets made. But it seems like Whoever owns the rights to Biggles isn't quite giving up on it. Uh, I think Night Witches
1: were a type of uh, like an air fleet, right? From World War Oh, I don't even know that. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. I think so. They were like something to that effect. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, maybe maybe they're always somebody's got their, you know, we can do something with it. So, you know, there's a lot of great movies. Uh, I think it's just something about Cushing's legacy that uh, in Star Wars rogue one rogue one a star wars story you know they made an effort to digitally change an actor's face into peter cushing
1: It got into I, a major lawsuit over it did they really yeah they did i i think they copied him from a different film that okay was used for development of that character so there was yeah there, well, Who? I
0: what think... was the lawsuit like presumably the cushing estate Signed no, up. it
1: was it wasn't the Cushing estate. It was the people that own the rights to the film that was used to model that character. Wow.
0: I would think yeah. you would I don't have know what cleared happened. That. Yeah, but evidently those people are like, that is our footage. Oops. Okay. What did you think of that? What did you I don't not the movie, what did you think of that idea of, of doing I mean, that to Peter Cushing? I mean, I, I think it's it's fine, you know. I think
1: it was a homage and it, it was like, oh, that's neat. He's in there. But it wasn't quite him you know and no. it was like it was no. like like a per, like a persona of him you know like a yeah. a copy of it a copy of a copy so i i think if he was doing it today he would have done that character a little bit different probably
0: yeah i i it took me out of the movie like i mean because i just mean like yeah. well that's now i'm looking at a cartoon you know and not yep. that not that looking at a cartoon is inherently a bad thing i know when i'm looking at a giant sea monster I know that's not real either, but there was just something about it that I went, ah, oh, you didn't need to do this. You could just hire an actor you that looks just a little like Peter or, Cushing. And or the back of his head, you know, just as a silhouette yeah. or something. Yeah. Yep. But, but at the same time, as a Peter Cushing fan, it did give me a delight to see him on a big screen again, you know, even in this sort of you know prefab form. Uh, it was, that, I enjoyed that. I was like, oh, that's cool. I mean, he, lived, he has cast such a long shadow in that character that here he is in a in a movie, you know, in in 2019 or whatever it was. So I thought that was actually, you know, it was cool in its own way. But again, I can argue with the, the results or whatever. So, you know, the guy had just an amazing hundred, like a hundred of more than a hundred films, some great stuff, some varied stuff, more varied than I thought. Right. I didn't know that he'd done as many different things. I didn't know about um you know, like I said, I haven't seen the nineteen eighty four, but just a lot of different stuff that I ever would have imagined, the Catherine and demand I mentioned. So it was just a real blast to go through and see some of these films again, because again, the guy's just he's just so fun to watch. Yeah, it was and and I learned so much. Every time I
1: I look at his acting style, I'm like, God, oh. you know, I, I try to find something or some kind of technique that he uses. You know, I you know, some people have like um they make like look boards and like what they inspire to be. And one year I I put him up, you know, as like the type of actor I would want to be. Oh, you, you can't go wrong. Like if anyone wants to become like Peter Cushing, you're going, you're you're reaching for the stars. You know, it's really high up uh, caliber of uh, acting skills. And it's so funny that a lot most people only know him from Star Wars, which probably for Peter Cushing, like in his in interviews about, it, he's like, yeah, they put me in this weird chauffeur outfit and the boots didn't fit because I have size 12 feet. So I'm wearing slippers <laughs> and, and I'm acting, you know, angry and I blow up and that's the end. I wish they would have say, you know, kept me. I could have been in another film and paid me more. <laughs> I
0: think it was, I forget where I saw this. It was Carrie Fisher. Yep, It said she had the toughest time being scared. By him because offset he was so sweet, yep. and so it, like she it, that bled into the the role. I mean, and you know, obviously in the role he's he's just completely without you know he's a completely monster. He's a complete monster. He yep. he is the he is the he's responsible for the death of you know hundreds of millions of people. The Potentially, we never planet. really find out how many people are on and but it's presu- right. presumably a lot of people. I mean, a ma- a mass genocide. By this guy, mostly just to make a point, not right. even for any sort of like uh, w- war strategic goal, just to kind of be like prove that you can do it. And So he is evil beyond evil. And I love even with all that. Carrie Fisher was like, I just it was hard to take him, not take him seriously, but it was hard to be scared of him because we would talk on the craft services table. and He was just such a sweet guy. And I'm like, what a nice thing to say about somebody. <laughs>
1: And it shows you that he has acting, that he wasn't a character actor. He actually genuinely was
0: playing a role. Yeah, fantastic. Just great, great stuff. And there's so much to watch. There's so Again, if you love genre movies, you love sci-fi and horror. There's just so much there. Uh, and it's all different kinds of stuff. And you know, some are monster movies and some are sci-fi movies and some are thrillers. He did a bunch of the 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 Amicus anthology films. He was in Tales from the Crypt, one of my favorites when I was a kid. When I, we first got a video store, Tales from the Crypt was like one of the first movies I ever rented because I because I recognized the comic book. I was like, oh, there was a '70s Tales from the Crypt movie, so I watched that uh, over and over again. And he's he's really fun in that. So it's just really just an absolutely uh, amazing career. So what I started with, uh, I started doing last month on the show was asking guests an exit question, just something related. To what we've been discussing related to the guest. And I'm gonna be changing it every month again, depending on who we're who we're talking about. So uh Lucien, I clued you in on what the exit question was yes. going to be because I wanted you to have time to think about it. So, which is let's just say uh you could well, okay, you could take this question either way. One, you could be, let's imagine Peter Cushing was alive today. Yes, like it's somehow like 2024. Somehow Biggles yes. beams him to 2024, <laughs> and he's like that. Or you could say it's somebody that you know when was working when he was around. Was there a, is there a director that you would have loved to have seen Cushing do a film with?
1: I, I'm going to go with 2024, um, only because it, it's a fun thing to do, and I'm going to go with um Robert Eggers. Who directed oh. the, the, the Witch, The Lighthouse, Northman, and soon to be re- released on Christmas Day, Nasferatu. I
0: can't wait for that. Yeah, movie.
1: <laughs> I'm so hyped on that. But can you imagine Peter Cushing acting in scenes with William Defoe? I mean that oh, would just my be, be terrible. Just two main characters just
0: blasting <laughs>
1: against each other. Like, whoa.
0: That is that's a fantastic. That's a fantastic answer. Uh, I think yeah. I
1: think William Dafoe is probably like the Peter Cushing equivalent today. Probably, I mm, I could see Possibly. maybe maybe I mean, in a way as far as his facial characters, you know. Okay, I by that. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. That would yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, for yeah, my I I do have an answer for this. I stuck with the time period that Cushing was alive, and I and this is not a terribly imaginative answer, but I wish it was John Carpenter. I wish oh, that yeah. he had maybe. Okay, he doesn't do Loomis, but I wish that Carpenter had gotten him for the fog or yes. even maybe big trouble in little China, like just something. I, I think, you know, Carpenter had such an affection for those guys and it would have been fun to see him work with, you know, like, okay, you, you didn't want to do Halloween, but can I get you to do, you know, two, three days on whatever the thing, you know, or <laughs> whatever, yep. something like that would have been so cool. So um, that I absolutely uh, would have loved. So, I have one other question I'm going to ask you, and I did not prep you for this. So okay. I, my apologies, Lucian, but I, I based this on the fact that you are in SAG Yeah. And you vote on the awards. You, yes. You, you are part of that, which is to yeah. me so exciting. Um, so my question to you is again, and I apologize for surprising you with this on air because I literally just thought of it about two hours before we started to sit down and record. Is there a performance that you think? I mean, Cushing, of course, never was nominated for an Oscar. Right. They were never going to give him an... Certainly never even going to nominate him for the kind of work he was doing, obviously. They're not getting, you Now, yeah. he's not going to get nominated for Best Actor for The Beast Must Die or whatever. But do you think there was... had you seen one of his movies that you think in another world, in another universe, maybe could have been deserving of at least some sort of Academy-level recognition?
1: I, I would say probably one of the, the Sherlock Holmes ones... Or the original Dracula mm-hmm. or Frankenstein, any of those. But, you know, it's so ridiculous to think that the Academy would actually vote <laughs> for for a Hammer horror films. But, it, but you know, there was a horror film that was um, got Best Picture a few years ago. So I, I think one of those those
0: type of characters that he portrayed. Absolutely. I think there was uh, depth to it. That would have been really fun, right? To go back and look yeah. at the Oscar histories, and you're like, "Wait, what? He got nominated for Best Supporting Actor as Baron von Frankenstein?" Like, right. you know, <laughs> yeah. Now Hollywood just was never, never going to do that. Uh, you know, at least right. in, in the period then when he was working,
1: and it was Maybe, British,
0: and it was Brit on top import. of it, right? Yeah, it was yeah. an import film. Yeah, so. and they would have done yeah. it. So, well, uh, Lucian, um, thank you so much for doing this. When you when you pitched this to me. Yep. I mentioned at the top of the show. I wondered how you want for a while, and then when you pushed this to me, I was like, "Yes," you know, because it's like <laughs> I always get excited when it's somebody who I want to dig into their work, and I just need an excuse. And on a on a on a just a um practical research level, his movies are short, you know, yes. like all of his movies are like eighty two minutes, eighty five minutes, which is like you can watch a bunch of them as it's opposed like, to uh, like oh, this is Oppenheimer, too-. which is one. Yeah, you know, like oh my god, I got to, this thing is two forty. You know what I mean? I can only watch so many, but I could knock off three Peter Cushing movies in a day if I really wanted to, and which I did in some cases. Like I'll oh, watch The Skull. Now I'm yeah. gonna watch Flesh and the Fiends. Now I'm gonna watch Fear in the Night. You know what the hell? So uh, Double Man, Double Man. It was so it was great fun reliving some of my childhood favorites and then and seeing some of his other films I'd never seen, just to get an even a greater appreciation for the guy's work. So thank you so much for doing this, man. I, I really I appreciate really appreciate it. it.
1: I I appreciate it and uh you know those of you listening I highly encourage you to read his uh Peter Cushing's auto autobiography because I, I think it's it's actually very good.
0: He's it's a good fun writer. Yeah, it's a fun charming read. Um so why do you tell people where they can find you out on the internet?
1: Uh you can go to my website uh desar.com
0: com. um and I have all the links right there. <laughs> Alright, very cool. Again, thank you. By the way, I love the font you use for Dazar.com. It's got like oh, a yeah. horror-esque font to it. It feels like something I would have seen. It's 1930s uh, Amicus. Art Gecko. Yep. Yeah, it's really cool. It really fits the fits the tone. So, again, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. And thank you all for listening. Of course, you can find all the back episodes of the show on our website, fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show on any uh, podcatcher of your choice. Uh, if you want to uh, support the show uh, on uh, Patreon. Just go to patreoncom podcast and there you're going to lock various rewards. One of which is to be named checked on a show of your choice. So, big thanks to Monique D and Donald McWaters for their support to fade out. I really appreciate it. That is going to do it. Uh, we'll be back with another fade out before you know it. But we've reached the end of this particular script, so it's time to fade out. From that moment on, you're on your way, and it's in that picture too that you first make friends with another star of the horror movie scene. Who, offstage, often greets you in this style, Mr. Andrews. That's the boy you got in your hand. Baron Frankenstein himself, a great man of yours ever since Peter Cushing. <laughs> well done, man. Well, no. Peter, it's very nice to think of Baron Frankenstein and the monster enjoying a joke together.
1: That was my very bad impersonation of dear Christopher's brilliant impersonation.
0: And you know, when you're at the studios about seven o'clock, it's half past six, and you know you're going down into dungeons and dark places, it's so wonderful to be amused by my dear friend. The story does go that um, I first met Christopher
1: in that makeup you just saw. And at lunchtime he took it off, and when he came into the restaurant
0: I screamed. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter Kutchley. Thank you.